Registered nurses at the VA's Cincinnati Medical Center recently staged a public protest, an informational picket, over what they say is a new and unsafe practice. They say veterans will become collateral damage and put their own nurses' licenses at risk. Here with the details, a nurse and a member of the National Nurses United, Eric Cromer. Mr. Cromer, good to have you with us. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on your show. Tell us what is the practice that the VA Medical Center in Cincinnati wants to institute that you feel would be harmful? Well, the practice that you're speaking of and that we had the informational picket about was changing the way that medications are administered by the staff. So the sickest patients go to the ICU because they need the most critical oversight, you know, the, the most constant assessments, things of that nature. And therefore, the medications that are given in those ICU required special level training. They required a lot of oversight and a lot of special, you know, labs and things that have to be looked at. Those medications should only, and those patients should only be in ICU. The Cincinnati VA wants to change the policy where certain medications that pertain to, as I just mentioned, would be on a med surge floor with a nurse that's got five patients and may be off the floor for a certain amount of time, and it's just an unsafe practice. And that was what that informational picket was about, along with so many other issues that are everything so heavy-handed here. And we'll get to some of those issues, but just to clarify, these would take the patients out of the ICU that would otherwise have been receiving their medications in the ICU and having them receive those medications in a situation where there would be many more patients per nurse to supervise. Correct. Absolutely. And why do they say they're doing that? Well, they don't see an issue in it. We actually sat down initially with them, myself and one of the other union members here, and uh, we voiced concern along with the pharmacist and the doctors who told us privately, the pharmacist publicly, that those medications do not belong on a med surge floor. Why they're doing it, we don't know. We've pointed out that it's unsafe, that it takes more oversight. It seems like they just hear that it takes more nurses and that we're just looking to have more staff, but we're trying to fight for the veterans so they get the highest and best quality care. And they trust us. You know, the veterans trust us with their care, and we want to be good stewards of that trust. And it's a violation of their own policy. Their own national policy is what is so puzzling about this. Uh, You can actually look in their database, but here in Cincinnati, they believe that they can just do it their own way. And you said there's some other issues between the management of that center and the registered nurses that's underlying all this also. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Back in May, we had a very peaceful meeting. There was a group of us, about 12 of us, that went to the director's office or conference room, knocked on the door. We were invited in by her, and we were asking about a flexible schedule that we had been promised well over a year ago. We had about a 10-minute meeting. We felt it was productive. All the nurses went back to work after that. Two days after that, we all got subpoenas from the federal police that we were being investigated, not only being investigated, but we were read our Miranda rights. The police that we went ahead and cooperated with the federal police, uh, they did the investigation and sent it to the U.S. attorney. The U.S. attorney didn't see anything that was the grounds for, you know, any illegal action because it was, you know, of course, protected concerted union activity. 
And the uh, local administration here still is calling upon different nurses to investigate them and, and just attempts to silence us and disintimidate any advocacy at all that we're trying to do for our veterans. I mean, we're just here for the veterans, and you know, it's our job to advocate for us. And they get the best care here, the veterans do. And it's like, uh, we want the same thing. We should want the same things, but it just doesn't seem like the management here at Cincinnati VA wants that. We're speaking with Eric Cromer. He's a registered nurse at the Cincinnati VA Medical Center and a representative to National Nurses United. And when you went to the office, I mean, did you come with noises and placards or something, or was it a scheduled meeting? It was a, um, we call it an action, which it's called a march on the boss, and it's just a way to get the attention of the boss, which in this case was a director, Jane Johnson. She was there with her co-director, Chris Schreigard. We just wanted to make them aware that our nurses were very concerned because, you know, they had been promised this flexible schedule for well over a year, and uh, it had been put off and put off, and it just had gotten to the point where it was apparent that they were just not going to do it. And so when you do something of this nature, you know, you just do it so they can see that this is what's causing your nurses to be upset. You know, we want to attract the best nurses and we want to keep the best nurses because registered nursing, there is a shortage around in this country. So we do need to do everything we can to keep the highest and best talent that these veterans deserve. And with respect and to this, that flexible schedule, what would change in your work life relative to how it is now? It would make it better. In the private sector, most nurses, they prefer 12-hour shifts. They do what's called a compressed schedule, so they work 72 hours. In the federal sector, they do 80 hours. Now, they're about half the VAs across the country, they already do this, and it works out great. The actual productivity goes up. The absenteeism goes down. The overtime goes down. It basically lets the nurse have the same schedule as in the private sector where they work 72 hours and they get paid for 80. So it's a great retention tool. We've had many people that stayed just because they were promised this a year ago. We've had people that were promised this and they took a job here and they haven't been given it yet. So that extra day would mean a lot to so many. I mean, with child care and, and, and with job, you know, burnout retention. And it helps you care for the veteran better because a happy nurse is going to provide better quality care as well. And that's 72 hours in a two-week federal pay yes, period, sir. in other words. Well, I yes, guess sir. to the yes. uninitiated, it sounds like if you have 80 hours of pay, why should you work 72 hours? How does that work in the private sector? Yeah, in the private sector, there's all sorts of different scenarios. I mean, I know there's like they have a weekend option where some nurses will only work weekends and they'll get paid for the same amount of hours because the weekends are undesirable. So, I mean, there's all sorts of flexible options in the private sector that they use to recruit and retrain nurses. This 72 for 80, what we're talking about, was something that was actually passed in Congress to retain RNs, and I think it goes back to like 2012 or something, the actual statute that was passed. But it is one of the tools that the VA is given to retain and keep the nurses. Right. So it's optional for a given center to do the 72 for 80. That's correct. That's correct. And, and right now, I think we have about over half of the VAs around the country do it. And there's all sorts of studies that come out as far as like, you know, the benefits of it and what, you know, created this concern, you know, as far as this meeting was, it was actually promised to the nurses here at the Cincinnati VA 
uh, via a town hall meeting Chris Freigard gave well over a year ago. So once he said, hey, look, we're looking at getting the 72 for 80 out for you guys, and this was in the midst of, you know, when so many nurses were leaving and they were going to travel agencies and things like that, um, you know, this was something that was stated in a town hall meeting to try to keep nurses from leaving and to bring new nurses on. So it was promised, and, uh, you know, a lot of people got very excited about it, and, uh, you know, here we are so many months later, and we're still waiting. Right, and getting back to the policy with respect to the patients moving out of the ICU, what is the status Mm -hmm. of that, and are they moving ahead with it, or is it in limbo at Um, this point? As far as I know, they have not changed their mind on it. I just spoke with my director. She said as far as she knows, she didn't get any information. In the beginning, they were actually doing the right thing and because, you know, anytime you have a change in work, you're supposed to sit down with the union. And they actually did sit down with us, but when they saw that, you know, the union was not going to be on board with putting our veterans at risk, they decided not to talk to us and use a clause, a very cowardly clause called 7422, which basically says that they don't have to negotiate with us because it's outside of the negotiating parameters. Right. So it's a potential at this point, but they haven't actually pulled the trigger on it. Correct. We're hoping that by bringing the concerns to the public and by, you know, letting people know that if they bring their loved ones here, that, you know, they could be at risk, that, you know, maybe they'll rethink it because, you know, it's it's something that I would not want to put anyone I love on a floor with not the proper trained RNs and staff to care for someone being on one of these drugs that, you know, regulate your heartbeat, essentially are life-saving uh, temporary Eric Cromer is a nurse at the Cincinnati VA Medical Center and a member of National Nurses United. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to take this call and and to uh, listen to our concerns. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field 
And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming 
after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.